6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Ecclesiastes, chapters 5 and 6. So it continues, Behold that which I have seen, it is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life, which God giveth him, for it is his portion. In the closing verses of this chapter, he's going to emphasize again the importance of accepting our station in life, wherever it is, and enjoying the blessings God gives us. It's almost like the, the Latin motto, carpe diem, seize the day. Live for now, wherever you are. Be satisfied both where you are and your capacity to enjoy it is itself a gift of God. Now, uh, this idea of, of uh, accepting labor uh, faithfully, enjoying the good le- things of life, and accept all that as a gift of God is something he, uh, he counseled us back in chapter 2 and chapter 3 on several occasions, and he's going to repeat three more times before the conclusion of this, of this book. Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth and hath given him power to eat thereof, and to take his portion, and to rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he shall not much remember the days of his life, because God answered him in the joy of his heart. So I think he's suggesting three things, three ways to get wealth. You can work for it, you can steal it, you can receive it as a gift, in effect. And the psalmist saw the blessing of God as a gift to those who work, and who accept that work as a favor of God. The Living Bible says to, to enjoy your work and to accept your lot in life That is indeed a gift from God. He adds another thought here. The ability to enjoy life's blessings is a gift itself. You have the gift of God, whatever they are. You also, the fact that you have the capacity to enjoy it is a separate issue, also a gift. How tragic it is, how tragic it is when you see people whose lives are ruined because they don't have the capacity to enjoy what they've got. And uh, always aspiring to that which they don't have because they somehow presume that's the answer. And he's going to expand on this whole thought in the next chapter and point out to the, point to those people that are unhappiness in their wealth because they're not able to enjoy it. We should thank God for food. Now, this may sound strange, but I find myself, whenever I eat and so forth, I, I'm fascinated as the guys come from a systems background. I'm astonished at the complexity of our digestive system and its coupling with our environment. If you realize the creation itself our own needs, and the complex process by which we take in uh, what we call food of all kinds, how the body extracts what it needs and passes what it doesn't. That whole system is so complicated, it defies even adequate simulation on our computers. We talk a lot about, you know, this all happened by accident. It's so complicated that engine, we, we still, to this day, I, I, I have a great cynicism and skepticism about most of what you read about nutrition. Because they're guessing, uh, for lots of reasons. But in other words, <laughs> I think what Psalm uh, uh, saying, it's like saying, thank God not only for the food that we eat, but for our ability to, to get our nourishment and enjoyment from it. 
And I think what uh, verse 20 suggests here is that uh, the person who rejoices in God's daily blessings will never have any regrets. The person who does that will not need to look back and sorrow on his past, for God gives him joy, is the way Ken Taylor paraphrases it in the Living Bible. I always remember Psalm 90.12. So, Lord, teach us to number our nanoseconds so that we maybe apply our hearts to wisdom. That's the Missler paraphrase. Number our days. Uh, I guess the Living Bible says another way, verse 20, it says, The people are thankful for God will not dwell over much upon the passing years. The New English Bible uh, handles it that way. Well, now, in chapter 6, Psalms going to talk about the futility of wealth. He could have just as easily taken Matthew 6.33 as his text. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. But I think the important thing is, before I finish the chapter, is basically that we should... uh, Love the Lord, accept the lot He assigns us, and enjoy the blessings that He graciously bestows. That's going to be the theme of Solomon through the rest of this. If we focus more on the gifts than the giver, we're guilty of idolatry. If we accept His gifts but complain about them, we're guilty of ingratitude. Grumbling is a sin. That's disturbing. As we read the uh, wanderings of Israel in the wilderness... We marvel at the, no matter what he did, you know, provide for them and everything. Millions of people wandering in the desert, taken care of supernaturally, and, and, uh, they're grumbling all the time. And we look at them and say, gee, that's sinful. And yet, we do the same thing. Mumbling about this, mumbling about that. I do. I, I'm, I'm sure you don't, but I do. Anyway, chapter 6. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is a common among men. A man to whom God hath given riches, wealth, and honor, so that he wanteth nothing for his soul, uh, of all that he desireth, yet God giveth him not power to eat thereof, but a stranger eateth it. This is vanity. It is an evil disease. That's his his quick summary of, of all that. And uh, Is life really a dead-end street? Seems to be sometimes. Sometimes we uh, don't reach our goals, or when we reach our goals, we don't ful- be fulfilled when we get there. Um, we sometimes overlook that sometimes the trip is the issue, not the destination. More than one person in life, in the Bible, have, have uh, been so discouraged that they wanted to die. If you felt that way, you're joining guys like Moses in Numbers 11, Elijah in 1 Kings 19, Job in chapter 3, and again in chapter 7, Jeremiah in chapter 8 and 15, and Jonah. All these guys at one came to a point where they sought death. Of all the verses in the Bible that I don't understand, the one in Revelation still bothers me. I have no idea what it means uh, when it says that men shall seek death and not find it. I have no idea what that means. I make all kinds of conjectures. I've read all the commentaries. They don't know either. They also just make conjectures. You would think in Revelation you get to that point where if you wanted to die, you'd find a way. You know, you can conjure up all kinds of ways you'd think would be certain. They wouldn't even be able to find the pieces. But there it is. Men will seek death and not find it. And it may be referring to something more the flavor of what we're dealing with right here. Is that uh, they get so discouraged that uh, that uh, death isn't a respite either. Probably one of the main problems in life is that it confronts us with too many mysteries that we can't fathom. Too many puzzles we can't solve. See, for life to be satisfying, it has to make sense. And if it doesn't make sense, we get frustrated. We can't see a purpose in it, especially when people go through deep suffering. We start to question God and even wonder if life is worthwhile. 
And clearly the desire of death is a rejection of God and God's control and God's divinity and God's purpose in her life. I think that was the only thing that kept me from doing something really stupid 10 years ago. I had a $5 million key man policy. I mean, it would have solved a lot of problems. I remember April 30th that year when it finally expired, it was a relief off my back. It took away the one outlet that I that haunted me for a while. But the only thing that kept me from doing something really stupid was re, that would rec- I recognized that would be a denial of God's control. He's either in control or he isn't. And I hope I never forget what that mood was like. It wasn't a mood for a few days. It went on for a year. But I hope I never forget what it was that, that was like. Because God is either in control or he's not. And that's the issue. And I think God finds a new way every day to ask each of us, do you trust me? When there's a suffering, when there's an unanticipated death or problem, it may have many aspects, but one of which is God asking, do you really trust me? Is Romans 8.28 still in your Bible? Is that, is that verse tabbed and marked? I check with it, check it about once a day. It's still there. So in chapter 6, he's going to talk about life's mysteries, uh, riches without enjoyment in the first six verses, labor without satisfaction, verses 7 through 9, and then questions without answers. Let's go, just go through it. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, he says. What a tragedy is in life to have the resources and not be able to enjoy them, for one reason or another. And how many people have worked hard towards retirement, only to have a heart attack or become an invalid or have someone steal their money through a bad investment or something? Uh, some crisis. Why do bad things happen to good people? Classic question all through the scripture. He mentioned this subject back in chapter 5 he's going to, and chapter 3, and he's going to deal with it some more. But to enjoy the gifts without the giver is idolatry, and enjoyment without God is simply entertainment. doesn't satisfy. But enjoyment with God is enrichment and brings joy, true joy and satisfaction. Now, verse 2 really seems to deal with a hypothetical situation that's going to be elaborated on here. Um, it may have happened to someone saw manure. It may be just hypothetical. It's obviously exaggerated the way you'll see in a minute. But uh, the fact that God gave Solomon riches, wealth, and honor and made the account, this account even more meaningful to him as he's going to get into it here. And uh, the guy in verse 2 apparently had no heir, so a stranger acquired the estate, and it seems also futile. Man to whom God hath given riches, wealth, and honor, so that he wanteth nothing for the soul of all that he desireth, yet God giveth him not the power to eat thereof, but a stranger eateth it. In other words, it was inherited not even by his own son. This is vanity and is an evil disease. What Solomon's saying in all this, as we go through this, he's saying that uh, enjoy the blessings of God now and thank him for all of them. He's saying don't plan to live, start living. Carpe diem would be the common, popular way of expressing that. If a man beget a hundred children... And live many years, so the days of his years be many. And his soul be not be filled with good, and also that he have no burial. I say that an untimely birth is better than he. For he cometh in with vanity, and he departeth in darkness. His name shall be covered with darkness. Moreover, he hath not seen the sun, nor known anything. This hath more rest than the other. Yea, though he live a thousand years twice told, yet hath he seen no good, do not all go to one place. In other words, death is the final leveler is really what he's saying. So this could be, a, as I say, a hypothetical case because no one lives 2,000 years and no one's likely to, in a monogamous marriage, produce 100 children. Now Solomon's son, Rehoboam, had 88 children, but he had 18 wives and 60 concubines. Like father, like son, right? Now Solomon's obviously exaggerating here rhetorically to make a point. No matter how much you possess, if you don't possess the power to enjoy it, you might as well never have been born, is his expression here. 
So here's a guy that had abundant resources, uh, both in a large family, both of which to an Old Testament mind, of course, was uh, the marks of God's special favor. But his family does not love him, and when he died, he's not lamented. The meaning, that's the meaning of had no burial in the Hebrew. His relatives stayed around him only to use his money, and they wondered when the old man would die. And if he did die, his, only, his surviving relatives could hardly wait for the reading of the will. That's sort of the flavor of what he's talking about here. And uh, So the rich man was really poor, but Solomon's arguing. And for some reason, maybe sickness, who knows, uh, he didn't enjoy his money, couldn't enjoy his family because there was no love in the home. They didn't even weep when he died. So his conclusion is better if he hadn't been born, is, is Solomon's suggestion here. In, among the Jews, by the way, a stillborn child is not named. So they'd be quickly forgotten, is the idea. Verse 4 in the NIV says, If a child comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness his name is shrouded. And that's perhaps another thought that's lying behind that expression. And some would argue that existence is better than non-existence, and a difficult life better than no life at all. And I think Solomon might agree with them, because he also says that a living dog is better than a dead lion. So in chapter 9, we haven't got there yet, but all right. But the uh, problem Solomon faces is not whether existence is better than non-existence but whether there's any purpose behind the whole seemingly unbalanced scheme of things. That's really the root thing that's bothering him. And uh, he could find no reason why a person should be given riches and yet deprived of the power of enjoying them. That's the contradiction he's dwelling on here. But see, the ability to enjoy life comes from within. That's the real issue. Paul says that in Philippians 4.11, I have learned in whatever state I am therein to be content. Paul has it, nails it on the head right there. And the word content there, the Greek, means a self-contained, adequate, needing nothing from the outside. Self-sufficient would be another way to put it. And, of course, Paul carried with him all the resources he needed for facing life courageously and triumphing over difficulties. He said, I can do all things through what? Christ, who strengtheneth me. Chapter 4 of Philippians. All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is not filled. For what hath the wise more than the fool? What hath the poor that knoweth to walk before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the desire. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. He's speaking here about labor without satisfaction. He'd spoken about the rich man, and now he talks about the predicament of the poor man. See, rich and poor labor to stay alive. They either produce food or earn money to buy it. Rich man can have his money at work for him, but the poor man has to use his muscles if he and his family go to work. Somebody said, uh, the trouble with being poor is it takes all your time. <laughs> but even after his labor, the appetite of neither one is fully satisfied. Verse 7 says that labor of man is for his mouth and, and the appetite is not filled. Can man add, add years to his life? But, uh, but it, what good is it add years if he can't add life to his years? That's in effect what uh, Solomon's suggesting here. Uh, Warren Wearsby deals with this. His commentary on this is one of the most fruitful, I think, that I, I've encountered. He says, I like the birds that I watch in my backyard. They spend all their waking hours either looking for food or escaping from their enemies. We have cats in our neighborhood. <laughs> These birds are not really living. They are only existing. Yet, they're fulfilling the purposes for which the Creator made them because they even sing about it. <laughs> That's so typical Wearsby. I like that. So... So Psalm's not suggesting that uh, it's wrong to either work or to eat. Many people enjoy doing both of those. But if life consists only of those, uh, then we are being controlled by our appetites. And that puts us almost at the same level as animals. That's his argument. And we're created in the image of God. Something There's something greater for us. By the way, since we are new creations in 2 Corinthians 5.17, 
then self-preservation may be the first law of death. We think of being, you know, self-preservation is, is a basic animal law, yes, but, but uh, if, if you're a new creation, that could be the first law of death. Interesting thought. For what hath the wise men more than the fool? And the answer, of course, is none, nothing. And what hath the poor that he knoweth to walk before the living? Nothing. You don't live by your, to satisfying your appetite. That's basically the theme he's hammering here. And he's not belittling education or self-improvement. That's not his point. He's just saying of themselves, these things can't make life any better or richer. We must have something greater for which to live, is his argument. That's what he's going to build up here. It's interesting, you know, over a century ago, when the United States was just starting to experience prosperity and expansion, the American naturalist Henry Thoreau uh, warned men that they were devising improved means to unimproved ends. That says it all. And boy, you should see our world today, right? We can send messages around the world in seconds and got nothing to say. We can transmit pictures even to the moon, but our TV is stained with violence, sex, cheap advertising, and even cheaper entertainment. Verse 9 is Solomon's version of a common saying, is that a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, in effect. Better is in the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the desire. It's a it goes a little deeper than that. Uh, the Greek biographer Plutarch uh, uh, said that he is a fool that lets slip a bird in the hand for a bird in the bush. Same that goes back a long time. Plutarch is you know, a long time. He's always really, uh, saying it better to have a little and really enjoy it than to dream about much and never attain it. That's sort of the, Solomon's paraphrase of that, if you will. We must make care that our ambition is motivated to, by the glory of God and not the praise of men. That's really what I think is the the essence of all this. Serve others, not promote ourselves, is what he's arguing. And if we think our achievements will automatically bring satisfaction, we're wrong. That's what Solomon's advising us. And Jesus said the same thing, in effect. In John 4, he said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That was Jesus' statement. Jesus himself had his focus and involvement and his commitment on doing his Father's will. And and Solomon's going to highlight that as we go. Okay, we're almost there. Let's see, we'll make it. That which hath seen is named already, and it is known that it is man. Neither may he contend with him that is mightier than he. Seeing there be many things that increase vanity, what is man the better? For who knoweth what is good for man in his life, all the days of his vain life which he spendeth his wisdom? For who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? These are questions you might say without answers. 10 through 12. See, so far he said, the psalmist suggested that life is a dead-end street with two kinds of people, those that have riches but no enjoyment and those that have, who labor and have no satisfaction. That would be the flavor you've gotten so far. But he's tried to point out that uh, uh, true happiness is not the automatic result of making a good living. It's the blessed byproduct of making a good life. That's, that really is his argument. See, if you devote your life to the pursuit of happiness, you'll be miserable. However, if you devote your life to doing God's will, you will find happiness as a byproduct. The British essayist uh, Joseph Addison wrote, The grand essentials to happiness in this life are something to do, something to love, and something to hope for. Now, he may not have had Christianity in mind when he wrote that, that we have all three in Jesus Christ. We have all three in Jesus Christ. We have something to do, something to love, and something to hope for. The, the psalm's not finished. He's going to uh, be talking about a third kind of person that required answers to these questions. 
And Psalm is not going to condemn inquiry. He's, in fact, Ecclesiastes is a record of his own inquiry. He's going to say there are some questions about life that no one can answer. But our ignorance should not be used as an excuse for skepticism or unbelief. That's what the word agnostic means. Agnostic comes from the Greek root. The Latin equivalent is ignoramus. And it doesn't go over a party, cocktail parties. I'm an agnostic sort of works, but I'm an ignoramus. You don't, you don't hear those claims so often. But we'll go, <laughs> go on here. Um, that which has been named already and is known that, is, that it is man, neither may he contend with him that is mightier than he. See, into the Jewish mind, when you name something, you are fixing its character and stating what it really is. During the creation, God named uh, things that he made. And nobody changed those designations. Light is light, dark is darkness, day is day, and so on. Adam is of the earth. Came from the earth, returns to the earth. These are uh, not just arbitrary labels. They're in Jewish parlance. They're intrinsic to the character of what we're talking about. That's why the name of God is so precious, because it embodies who he is. When we change the names of things, we indulge in illusion. And uh, we, we lose touch with the reality. So we may be free to choose in our world, but we're not free to change the consequences. That's part of what he's going to develop as he goes forward in the subsequent chapters. But I think the main flavor of these questions, we're going to talk more about this next time, because in the next chapters, next session, he's going to talk about wisdom and the shortcomings of wisdom as we think of it. But the main point that he's developing here is that our greatest freedom comes when we are lovingly lost in the will of God. That's really the thrust of what he's going to be uh, dealing with here. See, for who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? Who can tell? Who is, what's the answer to that question? Who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? Only God can. See, we've reached the boundaries of, of Solomon's uh, purview here because he's, he's limiting himself to what's under the sun and what happens prior to death. And he's going to use this whole futility argument to point out that the answers have to lie beyond death and beyond what's under the sun. And he's going to make that point as we go. What he's argued so far, in the book so far, is that um, he talked about the monotony of life in chapter 3, if you call the futility of wealth in these chapters. Life under the sun will be monotonous and empty if we don't include God in our lives. That's the point he's going to end up making. And what he's going to argue, he argues in, uh, in, he argued in chapter 3, and he argued at the close of chapter 5. Let's carry that away as we go that life is God's gift to us as well as if, if we accept what he gives us, he'll also give us the ability to enjoy it as we can. Now he's going to take up his third argument in uh, chapters 7 and 8. Can wisdom, whether or not wisdom can make life any better. Wisdom can't explain all life's answers, but it's still a valuable ally is where that's going to come out. We'll develop that in the next two chapters. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. You know, as you, as, as Solomon wrestles with life under the sun and constrains his concerns with life prior to death, it really amplifies the preciousness of what you and I have in Christ. Because our entire world here on the earth and our activities prior to death all take significance, meaning, relevance, and victory and triumph by the reality that we're in Christ, that we're not lost, not part anymore of a, a fallen race, but we're new creatures. 
and our focus, involvements, and commitments extend beyond life under the sun. And our real death for us becomes a fulfillment of a destiny that's too fantastic for us to even imagine. So let's do bar our hearts. Father, we do thank you for who you are. We ask you, Father, for forgiveness for our sins, for our sins of ingratitude, as we continually underestimate who you really are. And we continually tend to ignore your involvement moment by moment in our very lives. We also ask you to forgive our presumption, Father, as we flippantly, glibly, routinely indulge in what we call prayer, that we don't really apprehend who you really are and the extremes that you've gone to on our behalf. We ask your forgiveness, Father, grateful for your faithfulness, that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. And we thank you for your word, Father. Yes, even these words of Solomon, of the natural man, where even here through the lines we see him pointing to you as our hope, our relevance, and the source of our capacity to enjoy even the littlest things as we go forward. So, Father, we would come before your throne acknowledging our sin and asking you, Father, through your Holy Spirit to help each of us to continue to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Help each of us, Father, to more fully understand what it is that you would have of us in the days that remain. We ask for your illumination of that very path before us, step by step, that we each might be more responsive to your will in our lives, that we each might be more pleasing in thy sight, as we commit ourselves, Father, without any reservation, we commit ourselves into your hands. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your prayerful continued support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.